Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, my name is Catherine Bird. I'm a shareholder in the Toronto, Ontario, Canada office of Ogletree Deacons. We're coming to you today from San Diego, California, having just presented a session at the fabulous Workplace Strategies Conference called Is It Time's Up on Me Too? With me today is Evan Citron from our New York, New York office and Liz Falcone from our Portland, Oregon office. And Liz, why don't you give us some stats about why this is an important topic today? I think that what we saw with Me Too and the reason that the Me Too movement became such a phenomenon in society was that the complaints that women were registering were something that resonated extremely broadly in our population. There was a study that found that 81% of women and 43% of men experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault in their lifetime. And while that study also surveyed harassment and assault happening in places like uh, out in public or in schools, 38% of women reported some type of harassment at work or school. And what I think was really interesting about the UCSD study was participants were asked to self-report, basically to tattle on themselves about the kind of behaviors they had engaged in. And more than 25% of women and 15% of men reported that they had used gender-based slurs. And even among those who were reporting that they committed these types of acts, there were even higher numbers of those same people reporting that they had both been experienced harassing conduct and engaged in it. And so Me Too was something that people just inherently, it struck a chord with them. These were things they were seeing in their life and that they honestly had participated in in their life. And that was also consistent with studies that the EEOC had done, finding that 90% of individuals who claimed to have experienced harassment never took any formal action. Well, the UCSD study uh, also supported that because even among individuals who agreed that they had behaved in these troubling behaviors in the workplace, some type of sexual harassing conduct, inappropriate comments, things of that nature, only 2% of men and 1% of women reported they'd been actually accused of that. And so I think that all underscored this idea that there was a lot of this behavior that was going on under the surface and and people weren't being called accountable for it. And what we then saw at the height of Me Too was a huge surge in EEOC charges with the sexual harassment component. Those went up by about a thousand charges from roughly, you know, six in the six thousands in the years preceding Me Too, and then around 2017 spiking in the seven thousands. So I think what we saw was that this was an issue whose time had come. And Evan, what was the legislative response? What, what, what did we see in terms of formal reaction to these Me Too stats and circumstances that Liz was just telling us about? Me Too spurred a significant legislative reform. Among the more consequential and notable developments there include ending forced arbitration, 
of sexual assault and sexual harassment claims, prohibiting non-disclosure provisions that conceal details relating to claims for discrimination, retaliation, or harassment, and increasing statutes of limitations for sexual assault actions. So all of these developments go to promoting greater transparency of these issues and providing greater opportunity for individuals to pursue claims. Beyond those developments, though, we've seen states take further targeted actions to provide further protections for employees. For example, Illinois passed a law requiring casinos and hotels to provide workers in isolated settings with panic buttons to provide them further protection against sexual assault. And in New York, where as part of uh, New York's recent equity agenda designed to strengthen the state's anti-discrimination laws, the state established a confidential free hotline for reporting cases of sexual harassment. And that hotline not only permits callers to access information and resources related to claims of that type, but it also connects them with pro bono counsel that can provide advice and counsel with respect to whatever it is the callers experience and what their options might be to pursue claims. At the federal level, President Biden signed into law the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, and that law prohibits the enforcement of pre-dispute, mandatory arbitration and joint class action waiver provisions for claims of sexual harassment and sexual assault that would otherwise have been covered by arbitration under the Federal Arbitration Act. So this development significantly precludes employers from compelling arbitration of these claims. An individual interested in pursuing these claims could still proceed in arbitration if that was their preference, but now they have the option, uh, if they wish to do so, to pursue their claims in court, to do so in a public forum, again, with greater transparency, and to try those claims to a jury instead of being forced into a confidential private arbitration setting and having to submit the claims to the arbitrator for a decision. So very consequential development here, and it notably it applies retroactively to agreements that were executed prior to the enactment of the law. Let's head north of the border. Catherine, can you update us on developments there? For sure. So I think a lot of the changes that you're seeing south of the border uh, are being experienced up north in Canada. We have provincially regulated employees and federally regulated employees. And the federal government has op updated its occupational health and safety legislation to re explicitly require workplace sexual harassment policies and procedures. And so have many provinces, including Ontario, British Columbia, and Alberta. So as part of those amendments, employers are now required to have a policy prohibiting sexual harassment in the workplace. And they're also required to have a procedure that outlines how complaints can be made, how they're going to be received, how they're going to be investigated, and what type of remedial actions the employer is going to take. And we're seeing those legislative updates across Canada and increasingly in various provinces. And I think at some point it will just become a standard portion of occupational health and safety legislation. In the province of Ontario, we're seeing a focus in post-secondary institutions in the post-secondary sector on sexual violence and sexual misconduct policies. The Ontario government has, starting in 2016, promulgated legislation requiring various policies be in place across institutions to deal with 
sexual violence on campus, sexual misconduct on campus. And their most recent changes is a very far-reaching policy that requires employers to have certain policies in place for sexual misconduct that allow employers to terminate employees for just cause and also have no rehire provisions. Finally, predating the Me Too movement, but certainly continuing through the Me Too movement, many of the limitations acts across the various provinces were amended to permit allegations involving sexual violence, sexual assault, to be filed outside of standard limitation periods. So what happened was the governments did away with the typical two or three year limitation period that was applicable to civil claims. And where those civil claims relate to sexual violence or sexual misconduct, there is now no limitation period, meaning that the claims can be brought substantially after uh, the incident in question occurred. In addition, uh, in the province of Ontario, we're seeing a trend that you have also seen throughout about 30% of the states in the USA and in other provinces in Canada where there are restrictions on non-disclosure agreements in cases and in circumstances involving sexual misconduct. And I think that's a trend that certainly arose out of Me Too and has spread, as I say, to a number of provinces and states. Is there anything about employee training, Evan, that's happening south of the border? Yes, we've also seen several states enact laws requiring employee training with respect to sexual harassment prevention. Many of these states have directed their state anti-discrimination agencies to enact uh, model training programs for employers either to adopt or to consult as they develop their own specific materials. And although everyone should consult their own state's law to ascertain the specific requirements applicable to them with respect to training, when we survey the field, we see a lot of commonality across each state's requirements with respect to training. For example, that the training be interactive, or at least possess an interactive component, that it explain the meaning of sexual harassment in a manner that's consistent with guidelines from the DOL and the state's anti-discrimination agency, that it provide examples of what types of conduct constitute sexual harassment under the law, that explain the uh, federal, state, and other applicable statutory provisions that are going to bear on these types of claims, and outline remedies available to employees with respects to uh, rights for redress, how they would go about pursuing claims in terms of forum and timing, and also outlining uh, issues applicable to supervisors, in including supervisory responsibility with respect to these issues. So we've gone deeper then with some of the state response that we've seen with respect to uh, this post-MeToo landscape. Liz, why don't you talk a little bit about what we've seen in the courts? Yeah, thanks, Evan. I think that what we are seeing in the courts is that there is going to be a rise in the number of sexual harassment claims that are brought, perhaps for the sole reason of avoiding arbitration, which employee counsel generally disfavors over being in court. And I also think that we're going to see a lot more conduct characterized as a sexual assault and brought as a sexual assault standalone claim, not, not just part of a hostile work environment or other type of harassment claim. I have handled some cases over the years, both before and after Me Too, 
And it was not atypical to see really egregious, really severe allegations of sexual assault brought as a standalone sexual assault claim. But I'm seeing claims where on the continuum of the severity of the conduct, things that are much less severe are, for example, touching someone on the back are being characterized as sexual assault in a way where pre-Me Too, we probably would have seen that as just one claim among many of the type of conduct that made up a hostile work environment claim. I also think that we are seeing bigger jury verdicts in harassment cases. Uh, I think that the attitudes that were reflected in the UCSD survey are present with jurors. They believe that this kind of conduct occurs. They believe it because they've experienced it. And so, and the tolerance for these types of behaviors has really eroded. And so, you know, you're seeing juries come back with much larger verdicts than they would have. That also means the cases are harder to settle. There are higher settlement expectations on the part of the employees and their counsel. Cases where 10, 15 years ago, you would not have put a six-figure price tag on the type of conduct. Even for me, practicing in California, six figures would have been considered high. Now we are getting claims for multiple six figures for conduct that I think is or demands for multiple six figures for conduct that on the continuum of what can make up a sexual harassment case is much less egregious than what it would have taken to demand that. What what about you, Evan, or, or you, Catherine? What are your experiences with litigation? I would just note your description very much tracks with what I've been seeing in New York where I practice. We're seeing, I would say, far more aggressive demands from adversaries in this space earlier on in the action a far greater receptiveness to kind of push through pre-dispute settlement discussions and get into discovery, mindful of the fact that discovery is going to be quite costly and uh, disruptive for employers, and mindful of the fact that whereas prior to Me Too, of course, these cases were always sensitive, they've become downright radioactive post Me Too for employers, especially for those employers that have any semblance of of a high public profile. And I've I'll just note frequently we'll hear threats from adversaries in this space. How about you, Catherine? Does Liz's description in my own track with what you've seen in your practice? I think it's very similar in Canada. The big difference, of course, is that our quantum of settlements, our quantum of damages, our quantum of awards is just materially less than what we see in the United States. While damage awards have gone up, they have gone up to $150,000 Canadian. Uh, as opposed to going up to you know $440 million. Evan, you were telling me about a case recently, I think it was Los Angeles maybe. We don't have that type of quantum of damages, but certainly we are receiving a lot more claims related to sexual harassment in the workplace. The claims have higher dollar values attached to them. And I think your point about settlement, Evan, is really a good one, which is that employers are more motivated now to resolve these things because they get litigated in the public square, because they are worried about the PR, HR, LR, whatever, whatever relations issue uh, that these types of allegations give rise to when they do become public. And that really does drive a differing response than what we would have seen 10 years ago, where I think there was an expectation that the public square would disbelieve the complainant. Uh, Now the expectation is that the public square will believe the complainant, and the public relations issues that flow from that will be significant. 
One of the things that I think is really important for employers to consider when they get a claim is really what are your tactical decisions that you make today about who's going to investigate and who you're going to hire as counsel? How are those going to affect you later on if it is a case that you need to fight? I think that it's really important to have an investigator who has credibility and experience and can deal with some of the sensitive issues that we're talking about because what you need is someone who is going to be able to go in and ask probing questions and try to get to the truth, but in a way that doesn't look like victim victim blaming because victim blaming is not the strategy that is going to work in the vast majority of the cases. People aren't going to believe it because their hearts and minds are already oriented to believe victims and to believe that this kind of thing occurs. And so you need to select someone who is going to be able to help you marshal a defense where you look credible, responsive, and empathetic, but that you also are able to assess all of the facts, all of the facts on both sides, and where we see cases where someone has themselves engaged in some behavior that would have maybe in hindsight not have been wise, like spending time with a coworker consuming alcohol and uh, putting themselves into that circumstance. You need to be able to ask questions about why the parties ended up where they ended up without it being cast as vilifying, victim blaming, or shaming. Yeah, you referred earlier to that study, and I think some stats from that on this point are really interesting. 43% of women and 40% of men are inclined to believe sexual harassment occurred in all or most of the recent high-profile cases. I, I, if you had done that study 10 years ago, I don't think the outcome would be the same. And in the converse, 8% of women and 11% of men believed nothing had happened in those high-profile cases and that the accusers were lying or were otherwise making things up. I think those, that's a change. It's a material change. Any final thoughts, Evan? Just note that how challenging it is to make these tactical decisions. How do we approach investigation? How do we approach defense? How do we defend a case vigorously when we know uh, these claims are so scrutinized by the public? And as, as Liz uh, noted earlier, employers face, uh, if they are to lose on the merits at the end of the day, potentially staggering uh, damages awards. And I'll just briefly note two cases that caught our eye recently. One is a Los Angeles Superior Court case, a lawsuit in which Two employees had alleged sexual and racial harassment by a group of, of, of workers, and including their supervisors. The jury ultimately awarded uh, damages in the amount of $464 million, including more than $440 million in punitive damages. We also saw in the Eastern District of Texas recently a Texas jury award $70 million to 10 employees who had alleged race harassment and discrimination. So the degree of difficulty continues to climb for employers and the stakes really couldn't be higher. And uh, all of these issues warrant great attention and consideration as employers ha evaluate how to deal with these claims. Thanks so much. It was lovely, Liz and Evan, to present with you today. Uh, thanks to the audience for listening in to this podcast. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. 
And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.